Well, this morning, we recited the Apostles' Creed, and for some of you, you grew up reciting the Apostles' Creed, and for some, it might be the first time that you ever recited that creed, but in fact, we have been reciting that creed as Christians, as a global church, for thousands of years. We confess that there are certain, certain things that we believe as a church. And one of the things that we confessed in the Apostles' Creed just a few minutes ago before baptism is we confess together as a church that we believe in the church. We said we believe in the holy universal church. We believe in the church. And for some of you, maybe for some of you that have been reciting that creed, For many years, you've never stopped one minute to think about, what do I actually believe in the church? When I say we believe in the holy universal church, what exactly do we believe? And I think it's so important to understand that the reason we put our hope and we believe and put our faith in the church is because we're recognizing something powerful, that we believe that the church is not a building, that a church is not merely one congregation, but the church is God's global work of bringing people from every tongue, tribe, and nation together because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And because of the resurrection, because of the resurrection, the church was able to be born. The church was able to flourish. You see, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection that we celebrated last week, there is no movement. There is no church. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no kingdom. We all, all we are left with is a failed kingdom and a failed king. So when we say we believe in the holy universal church, we are saying that we believe in God's work that began at the resurrection, that it's through the resurrection that a movement began, that a church was birthed, that a kingdom was able to be advanced, that Jesus is not just the king who claims to be the king on the one side of the cross, but after, after the cross because of his death and suffering on the cross and because of his conquering of sin and death in the resurrection, we are able to say that Jesus is the triumphant king, that Jesus is the victorious king, and that his kingdom through the work of the church will now flourish and be advanced. And so when we celebrate together as a church on Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day, that we believe in the church, we are saying we believe in God's advance of the kingdom through the church. And what I want us to look at briefly this morning in John chapter 21, the the verses that we read together today, I want us to look at three marks of this post-resurrection kingdom. What what type of kingdom did Jesus leave behind? What did the post-resurrection, in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the man who claimed to be the king of the Jews, what did this post-resurrection kingdom look like, and how does the church be a manifestation of that kingdom? So three things briefly this morning in John chapter 21. The first thing that we see here is that we see a kingdom of rescue. The post-resurrection kingdom is a kingdom of rescue. And what do we see here in the first few verses? We see that Peter is going out with some of the disciples, and they're doing what? They're fishing. Do they have any luck? No. They come back empty-handed. They're not able to catch any fish. But in verse 4, what does it say? Jesus, 
As the day was breaking, after they had come back from a night of fishing and caught nothing, Jesus, as the day was breaking, stood on the shore, and what does he say to them? He says, children, do you have any fish? And they said, no. And what does he say in verse 6? He says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. What does that have to do with rescue? Well, when's the other time we see in the Gospels this idea, this concept of Jesus and the disciples casting the net? We see it when the disciples are first called, right? We see it, in fact, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. When Jesus first calls the disciples, what are they doing? They're casting the nets over the boat. And what does Jesus say to them? When he first calls the disciples in Matthew chapter 4, he says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You see, this concept of of the disciples casting the nets over is it was showing their authority as fishermen. And what Jesus was saying, or their role in their career, their vocation as fishermen, and what Jesus was saying to them as they're casting over the nets is he's saying that it's more than just catching fish, but your vocation, your calling is to be fishers of men. And so this idea in John chapter 21, when Jesus says, cast your nets over, it is symbolic of what your calling is that you will now be called to rescue people. What do I mean by that? How is casting your nets a sign of rescue? Well, water all throughout the Bible was what? It was symbolic of chaos, right? In Genesis, in fact, at the creation story, what does it say? It says darkness hovered over the earth, that there was, it was formless and empty. In the flood, it was a sign of chaos, All throughout the Bible, the water and the sea is symbolic of chaos and confusion. It's it's symbolic of something that is ominous and something that is threatening. And in fact, in Revelation, what does it say? It said, the sea will be no more. And so don't miss this. When Jesus says, cast your nets on the right side of the boat, he's not just saying, this is how you're going to catch fish. This is symbolic of your calling, that you are bringing people as fishers of men, not just to save them, but you are bringing people in from one kingdom to the other. You are bringing people in from a a realm of chaos and confusion to to the realm of peace, the kingdom of God. You are bringing people from one kingdom to another kingdom. You are bringing people from one realm to the other. And so when Jesus says, you will be fishers of men, and reminds them once again, cast your nets, it's symbolic of Jesus reminding them of what they're called to do. Because I have resurrected from the dead, you are to be part of a kingdom that rescues people. Bringing people out of a realm of confusion and darkness. Bringing people out of a a kingdom of idolatry and suffering and bring them into the kingdom of light. Bring them into the kingdom of God. So when we see here in John chapter 21, Jesus in light of his resurrection is calling us to become a kingdom that rescues people. That that is symbolic of the kingdom of God. Cast your nets in. Be fishers of men. Not only conversion, but bringing people from one realm to the other. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that rescues. And the church is supposed to be reflective of that kingdom. When people come to church here, when people come to Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, do they come in and do they feel a sense of being rescued? 
living in a life of darkness, living in a life of chaos, living in a a life that is dark? Do they come into our midst? Do they come into our community? Do they come into our church? And do they say, there's something different here? There's something different. There's a different message. There's a different hope. There's a different community that we are people that were lost but are now found, and we have the opportunity to go out and to announce to the world that we all are fishers of men, bringing people from one realm to another, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Don't miss that. Jesus just not only called his disciples to be fishers of men, he called his church to be fishers as well. Not just simply for conversion, but something bigger than that. Not only would they be saved from their sins, they would be brought into a community that would rescue them from whatever they were going through in life, out of the water of chaos and into the kingdom of hope and peace and refuge. I often tell people, people ask, why at Coleridge Presbyterian Church do you have a hospitality team? It kind of sounds worldly, right? Don't you have hospitality in hotels and banquet centers? And they go, no, no, no. The church should be the most hospitable place in the world because the actual word hospitality comes from the word hospital. That when, 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 we, when you're greeted here at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, we want you to be refreshed. We want you to be restored. We don't have a hospitality team to be showy. We don't have a hospitality team to, ref- to look like the world or, or to want to reflect uh, 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 like we're some hotel chain. We want to be the best at hospitality because we want this to feel like a hospital for people, people that are broken and people that are hurting, people that are being rescued from one realm to the other, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So Jesus asked them, cast in your nets, remind them of their calling. That is what we do as people that rescue. But not only do we see here the post-resurrection kingdom is a kingdom of rescue, we also see that this is a kingdom for the least of these. In verse 15, after they had caught all of the fish and they prepare this meal, after they had gotten done eating with Jesus, 153 fish, sounds unbelievable. Uh, In verse 15, it says, when they had finished breakfast, after the meal, picture this, Jesus is sitting there. They have eaten this extravagant meal. They are overwhelmed with food. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't take Peter into a a side room. He doesn't take Peter off to the side. In public, Jesus asked Peter these questions. And the opening question here in verse 15 is what? Simon Peter do you love me more than these? And he goes on this journey with Peter, and it's a, it's a journey of restoration. And he asks him this question, if you love me, what will happen? He says, if you love me, do what? Feed my lambs. And he goes on a second time in verse 16, Peter, do you love me? then tend my sheep. And then he goes on a third time, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And what he is doing here is he is reminding Peter that as you go out and you shepherd, as you go out and you minister, you will minister to the least of these. What do I mean by that? What did Jesus pick as a symbol of who needed to be ministered to? 
Peter, go and feed my lions. No, Peter, go and feed my sheep. If you love me, you will minister to the sheep. What do we know about the sheep? The sheep are the least of these. The sheep were confused. The sheep were lost. The sheep had no mind of their own. They needed a what? A shepherd. A sheep out of all of the animals that Jesus could have picked in this area. The sheep were the ones that were the most confused, the most lost. Jesus doesn't say, go and feed the lions, the powerful, the proud, the ones that have it all together. No, he says, Peter, if you're going to minister in the name of the kingdom of God, if you are going to minister in light of the resurrection of the kingdom, of the resurrection of the king, you will go out and minister to the least of these. You will feed and tend my sheep. Not the ones that are powerful, but you will go and feed and minister to the weak, to the most vulnerable. And then he goes on to say, feed and tend them. Well, we typically want to go after not only the ones that are the most powerful and have it all together, and Jesus says, no, you'll go after the weak and the vulnerable, the ones that can't protect themselves. But actually, sheep are also the one animal that show very little affection. And what does that tell us? Not only do I want you to go out and minister in the name of the kingdom of God to those that are weak and vulnerable, I actually want you to go out and minister to those people that show you no affection. Because it's easy to go after the people that are a lot like you. It's easy to go out to the people that will pat you on the back. It's easy to go after the people that will love you and praise you for the work and the ministry that you do. But the hardest ministry will be to the people that reject you. The hardest ministry will be to the people that turn their back on you. The hardest ministry will be to the, to the people that show you no love back and affection back. And Jesus says, no, they're the ones I want you to go after. Go after the weak. Go after the defenseless. Go after the vulnerable. And go after the ones that show little to no affection. But then last point, don't miss this. And understanding that this is a kingdom for the least of these. Not only does he want us to go after the weak, not only does he want us to go after the ones that show no affection, but what does he say? Go after your sheep? No, go after my sheep. Your ministry is not going to be to the ones that you choose. Your ministry is going to be to the ones that I choose. These are not your sheep. These sheep belong to me. Go after the weak. Go after the ones that will show you little to no affection. And go after my sheep. Not the ones that you choose, not the ones that look like you, not the ones that talk like you, not the ones that you get along with. You go after my sheep. Not the ones that you choose, but the ones that belong to Jesus. This truly is a kingdom for the least of these. So what do we see here in the post-resurrection kingdom? We see a kingdom that rescues. We see a kingdom for the least of these. And lastly, we see a kingdom motivated by divine love. What happens in this questioning of Peter? He asked him how many times? Three. And it says in verse 17, the third time Jesus asked the question, what happens? Peter grieves. Why does he grieve? You see, part of the restoration of Peter here in John chapter 21 was to take Peter back to his weakest moment. What was Peter's weakest moment? 
the denial of Jesus. How many times? Three times. See, in order to be restored, he had to go back to his weakest moment. Jesus needed to remind him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you really love me? And it was at that third time it broke the heart of Peter because he was reminded of Jesus in his most vulnerable moment, in his time of need. It reminded Peter how he turned his back on him and denied him. And anytime we see something happen three times in the Bible, anytime God or Jesus repeats something three times, it is to get a point across. It is the emphatic. And Jesus was trying to be very emphatic with Peter here. And what was the point he was trying to press upon Peter? He was not only trying to remind Peter of his weakest moment, he was trying to remind Peter that you say you love me. But never forget the one who truly loves. You see, Peter could have easily, easily walked away from this encounter with Jesus and said, Jesus, I got this. Thanks. Yep, tend your sheep, feed your sheep. I got this. Glad you're back. Glad you were raised from the dead. I'll take it from here. But it was as if Jesus was trying to press upon this point, not just once, not just twice, but three times to remind Peter to say what? You say that you love me, but you know you will have moments of weakness again. You know you will fail again. You know that you're not what you say you are all the time. That in fact, more often than not, you often fail, you often deny. But what does Jesus say at the very end? After he said this, verse 19, he said, follow me. Peter, it's great that you say you love me. I know you are going to do amazing things for the kingdom. I know you will feed my sheep and tend my sheep and tend my lambs. I know that you will do the work of the kingdom, but never forget this. I am the one that truly loves, that I am the one that never denies, that I am the one who always loves perfectly. I am the one that will never fail you, even when you fail me. And so in the midst of restoration, in the midst of restoring Peter to ministry, in the midst of giving Peter his commission, in the midst of giving Peter the charge, he does not want Peter to walk away too proud. He does not want Peter to walk away and say, I got this. I can take care of this. I can do the work of the kingdom. He always wants Peter to remember that I am the king, that I am the true pastor, that I am the true shepherd, and that you follow me. This is my kingdom, not your kingdom. This is my church, not your church. This is all about my work not your work. This is about my faithfulness and my love. I am the perfect king. I am the perfect shepherd. This is a kingdom that is motivated and fueled by divine love. He wants Peter to, be, to remember, you might say you love me, but remember that my love is always greater than yours. What good news is that? That is such good news. In Romans 8, Romans 8, verse 38 through 39, what does it read? 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is the love of God that will always be there, will always be present, will never fail us, and will fuel us and fuel the kingdom of God till the end of time. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that rescues. It is a kingdom for the least of these. It is a kingdom that is motivated and fueled by the divine love. This king motivates his people by constantly reminding them of how much he loves them and how much he has secured for them. Evan Thomas wrote a book, uh, a biography on Richard Nixon called Being Nixon. And it's a unique biography, it's a very unique biography on Nixon because it explores this very controversial, often complicated figure in history. And Evan Thomas writes and he talks about how fascinating he was, Richard Nixon, but that he was a man that was always driven by the fear of failure. And all throughout the book, especially in the early chapters, it talks about Richard Nixon's childhood. And it says that he lived between two parents, a mother and a father, always trying to win over their approval, always trying to please them, always trying to get their love, always trying to get the pat on the back, always trying to hear at least from one of them, Richard, I love you. And in one of the chapters, Evan Thomas interviews interviews Henry Kissinger, Nixon's esteemed Secretary of State. And Henry Kissinger says this about Richard Nixon. He says, can you imagine, can you only imagine what this man would have been like if somebody just loved him? What a great question. Can you imagine what this man would have been like if somebody just loved him? loved him. For those that are in Christ this morning, you should know because you have been loved more than you could ever hope for or imagine. You are loved with an extravagant, overwhelming love. And the question I have for you this morning is, do you believe it? See, the greatest challenge in life is actually believing that all of this is true. The greatest challenge in life is actually believing this morning that you are truly loved by the king. That you are loved in such a way that you can actually go out from the resurrection. That you can actually go out and do the work of the kingdom because you are fueled and motivated by a love that will never fail and a love that will never disappoint. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ all point to this amazing demonstration of divine love. We are loved in such a way that we are not motivated by the fear of failure, but actually in light of our failures, in the midst of our failures, we are motivated by a love that never fails. What king is this? 
What king is this? Every king, every king expands his kingdom, expands his territory by taking the life of his subjects. But not this king. This king expands his kingdom and expands his territory by taking his his life in order that you might live. What king is this? It's the love of the king that redeems. It's the love of the king that saves. It's the love of the king that moves us to do the work of the king in his kingdom. Behold your king.